this podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know, and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo what? Homeo what? Underway. Here we are. Greetings, uh, folks. Good morning. Hello. Good afternoon. Hello. And uh, good evening. <laughs> it's your Walter Cronkite voice. This is the BBC. I'm trying to turn off my Slack notifications. The news. Um, I want to welcome you all to uh, our podcast. <laughs> that's so formal. Yes, uh, that's why I'm being formal. How oh, are you? With your BBC voice. Yes. Roger that. It's a little earlier than usual for a number of reasons. Uh, but anywho, that's all right. And um, Wait, you mean we're recording earlier than usual? Oh, I guess we are. Yeah, we are. Not that much earlier. Oh, it feels earlier for me. But um, we've got much to talk about, and I want to know about you and your ear hole. <laughs> okay. So this is, this is really just so, um, in case I'm yelling... Or whispering. You need to yell. It's because I can't hear. You can't hear. Because my ear is clogged. So you're homeopath. Yeah. I need to do that. This has happened before, hasn't it? This happened to me once before, and it's actually a pretty hilarious story. And I think since we're going to talk about case analysis, Mm -hmm. um, it seemed like a good way to start since I'm walking around with my finger in my ear trying to unclog it. So about, oh, I guess it's about 12 years ago, I had this happen, and I was going through a a difficult time in my life. So right away, all of my, you know, holistic friends say, your ear is clogged. What is it you don't want to hear? Oh, it's your left ear. Are you listening? That's your feminine side. What about your feminine side are you not paying attention to? And so I go and I like, you know, I, I go to see my friend who's this, who's an herbalist and she does ear candling and, you know, did that. And then I, I spent, uh, yeah. I literally spent uh, probably $600. On how many practitioners? A, a million practitioners. <laughs> a, million. a million. I took a bunch of homeopathic remedies, and then I went and somebody said, why don't you try, go to, you know, the regular allopathic pharmacy and get this stuff that's, like, got peroxide in it. Oh, yeah. I did that, and then then it was, like, a concrete block in my ear. Like, I couldn't <coughs> hear anything. So then I just went to the I went to the doctor. Wait, you went to the conventional I to, physician? I went to the conventional physician. And? And they just put some warm water in my ear and a big wax candle came out like Shrek. <laughs> like Shrek? Yeah. Are you, have you seen Shrek? I've not seen it, but oh, I know but what yeah. Shrek is. <laughs> so, Shrek is the New Zealand sheep. I'll come back to it. Ah. Oh, right. Anyway, keep going. Anyway, so that was just a good lesson. Uh, well, what's the lesson? Sometimes you just have to get the wax out of your ear. <laughs> Sometimes Remove. it's like a stupid mechanical issue. Yes. And here I was. I mean, I literally, you know, I went to like this one person. I, I like, I went to this session, this energy healing session, because it's like, what don't I want to hear? And I went through this whole thing. I waxed my ear. What? <laughs> I want to know about those, you know, because I'm a fan of Louise Hay, a big fan, and have been since, you know, 1980. 78 when I first read it at age 12 you know <laughs> that that you can heal your life uh, those healing affirmations magnificent but I always get confused Notice about my silence <laughs> <laughs> I, folks if the stink eye could talk no I I have I mean I have all the books Carolyn Miss Louise Hay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. love yeah totally but I think you've also uh, there are certainly times in life or my life where I've 
uh, I've uh, found direct important parallels on reflection about, you know, my knee pain or my, you know, hip pain or my whatever. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're going to listen to our bodies. Oh, totally. But in your instance, <laughs> you had an obstacle to cure. Remove the obstacle. I wax in my ear. Yeah, yeah, you did. And it wasn't the first time. Once Can I was I in just Hawaii say and I got water in my ear and I had to go get, uh, you know, because this, this apparently happens to me. Can I, can I suggest something? Please. Can you go to the doctor, please? <laughs> to get the wax out of my ear? Yeah, because I don't... I mean, I I do that... Uh, no, I'll leave that. Yeah, anyway. Um, so, um, okay. but I've got an ear story. Wait, before we go to your ear story, can we... While we're on the Carolyn Miss and Louise Hay kind of thing, uh-huh. I was... You know, <laughs> when I... Um, when that started to really get to me was when um, my dear friend had a kid who had a brain tumor and died. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then another another friend of mine had a childhood a brain tumor, and I think to myself, these these children do not have. This is not you know there are, there are many factors, and I think self awareness and understanding our our capacity to create the life that we would like to have. I think that's really important, as well as sometimes things happen. Sometimes there are, as you know, homeopaths, miasmatic influences. You know, there are all sorts of ways that these things happen. But I, but there's a culture of, there can be a culture of blame, like blaming the patient, like that. You know what I mean? Like oh. when people get a diagnosis, a diagnosis, it's as if they should have done. And I think this happens it, with you know, sort of the holier than thou healer kind of thing sometimes. Um, and I just I don't like people to get blamed because I don't think that. I think sometimes we think we have more control than we do, mm. but I also believe in taking you know in accountability and self awareness. Yeah, is that fair? No, that's to- that's totally fair. And yeah, especially I don't mean to be a buzzkill. No, well, I mean you know the the, the balloons flat now. I mean, I did it. I she- ruined the day. No. I think we should start again. Um, no, what, what I was actually going to add is that, yeah, I mean, I have come around to the fact that those um, those things, those complementary treatments that stop people from getting the care that they need are, are, are a challenge for us. They're a problem for us. It's been identified as the probably the biggest um, uh, issue that uh, conventional Folks, medical folks, have with complementary folks. Right. Right? It's that delay. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, the delay could be six months in a serious situation or or a year. And I think that's worthy of a, of a better conversation than what we tend to see in the literature at the moment, which is complementary medicine, bad, conventional right. medicine, good. Um, if you're reading that literature, yeah. uh, you know, that's... that. You know, that's as unbalanced as, as anything else. But I, I, I want to tell you an ear story. Yeah. Do so, I not know this one? I don't think so. Oh, good. So Love I was story. Uh, I was sitting in the beanbag. <laughs> okay. And Explain cl- where you are in the beanbag. This is I was in I the middle the of the place, beanbag. And I know that. And I, I, know, I have the pictures. So, Can you explain the beanbag? Yeah, so I was, um, <laughs> at, when I went to um, school, homeopathy school, uh, my mid twenties. Uh, the it was an attended school. There was a distant school, and I did a bit of study there from New Zealand, and then I moved. I don't. I moved to the UK to study homeopathy at the School of Homeopathy, and uh, the teaching room had meditation stools and beanbags. Yeah, and that was it. And a couple of deck chairs, no, um, <laughs> fold up beach chairs. We would call them. 
Okay. Oh, the few of those there were turned folding up. chairs. They were still there when I was there. Oh, okay. All right. And so I was sitting on my um, beanbag. And, and then it, there were the little things that you could write on. There was like the surfaces <laughs> you would put on your lap to put your notebook on. Oh, I, I don't know about that. I had one of those. Okay. Anyway, go on. So um, it's, uh, it's not a didactic lecture. It's a, a clinical observation. And in clinical observation that day was a kid. And the clinic room was upstairs. Do you remember? Yeah, of course. And so you could hear you could hear kind of feet rustling, and if the kid was screaming, you could hear it. But there was a decent amount of space, and so then it was beamed down like crazy latest technology yeah. using video uh-huh. <laughs> uh, into the room, like closed circuit TV. We called it closed circuit TV. And this kid had a, a chronic nasal discharge, and the mom. I remember saying. Um, I remember the mum saying, well, chronic. I mean, it's been there for maybe two or three weeks. Like, heaps of green snot. Yeah. Like, massive amounts of green snot. And, you know, the students in the room, because, you know, there was no sort of crowd control, so they were all whispering, sometimes <laughs> talking over the top of the of what was going on in the clinic. And somebody's going, Metarina. And someone's going, duh, it's Kelly Solf. <laughs> and, uh, and someone said, it's Thuya. And, uh, and then eventually... Misha came down, the client went away, Misha came down and said, oh, I was I was wrestling with this one, but I've given silica as a as a as a remedy. Oh, I know where this is going. And and we were chatting about it and then the phone went. And the phone went and Misha disappeared and answered the phone, came downstairs and said, <laughs> The most I can't do Misha. I mean, but imagine that beautiful voice. The most extraordinary thing happened. <laughs> The mum is driving home from the clinic and out of the nose comes a watch battery (laughs) (laughs) that the kid admitted to the mother he shoved up there three weeks ago. (laughs) And, uh, and, and this is like, she just got home. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. I mean, my God. If you want to see, I mean, that's a story. You that's know, such a good story. Like the kid sticks something up there, silica. It says silica. You've got to watch silica because that reputation of removing yeah. things that should not be there. <laughs> wow, that's real. And of course, homeopathy works so quickly. Yeah. You know, in in um, some situations. And uh, I, gee, I love it. I, I think that's a hilarious story. But it's anyway, such a good story. Ears and noses and all yeah. the rest of it. So it brings us to our topic for today. Oh yeah, what's that? Clinic. Uh, and case analysis. Clinic and case analysis. Yeah. And this subject is, it's on my mind. Because is, now that I've finished a lot of my deadlines, I'm back to my book, which I made a lot of progress on in 2019. Mm-hmm. And I still have the little card on my desk that says how many words a day I've got to write to get to my goal and blah, blah, blah. And then I had to put it aside to write other things. How many words? Uh, 1,500 a day. Okay. That's yep. my goal. That's good. So... <clears throat> It's been really interesting because, of course, go, you know, running clinics for so many years now and designing clinical training programs, it's like you see how sausage is made. And you also get a sense of what people come to homeopathy expecting case analysis to be mm-hmm. about, right? And so there are, there are oh, this is a terrible expression. You know that expression, there's more than one way to skin a cat? I love that expression. I really don't like it. I, I think I used to just say it mindlessly, but now that I'm now that I'm really being mindful about 
idioms and expressions and what they mean. I'm sort of like, now I think about them all and I'm like, ew, when it comes to the cat skinning. Mm. I don't even know what that means. It's probably a, it's probably something I shouldn't say. Can anyway. I, can I say that? Uh, can I mention something just about that? Why do I think this is going to be naughty? Oh, uh, it's not, but it's just one of those things Might where you're be. in the moment and yeah. in a case taking, this was in clinic uh, years ago, probably exactly the same clinical model that I just... Yeah. was talking about, but I was talking to the daughter of a taxidermist <laughs> who hated what her dad did. Oh, yeah. And was a vegetarian, a staunch <gasps> vegetarian. Oh, and of course, when I'm listening to the way I'm describing homeopathy, it's full of these expressions, which I use as I'm thinking ahead. Can you give an example of well, one of them? At the end of the day, right? Yeah. I say at the end of the day, because I'm thinking, I need to say something, Yeah. but I'm thinking... You know, two thoughts it's ahead. It's a placeholder. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> it a spacer. Is. It's, a, it's a placeholder. But so is, so is, well, there's many ways of skinning a cat, right? So that's a place. And uh-huh. I, was, I was using that expression. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Directly, to the taxidermist? Yeah, 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 to the, this woman that just, oh. she'd given up on, uh, yeah. Was, when I, um, you know, I spent a couple of years working at um, Farm and Wilderness summer camp. Yeah. It's a couple summers, I should say. <laughs> and... Um, I worked in the kitchen one year, and I worked on the medical team. But I, I, one year I got to work in the kitchen, which was amazing because we made all the food for, from scratch. It was uh, I, There were 200 uh, girls, about 175, and then there was staff. So, like, 200 people we cook for every day, everything from scratch, from the bread to whatever. Oh. And, you know, hippie camp, it's amazing. And um, one day I get a call. I'm in the kitchen, and the teenagers camp... The, this is like the, I guess they're 15, 16 to 18 or something. They, I get a call and this young person from their kitchen says, yo, you got a butt ton of salt over there? <laughs> it's like, um, like, is butt ton an actual unit of measure? Like, what does that mean? And um, they needed salt because they had skinned a variety of creatures that they were curing for some project or whatever. Yeah. That's a little taxidermy story. <laughs> but ton of salt. Anyway, okay, total digression. But total. Um, so thinking about how case analysis happens, so if we go back to my ear, right, and my, uh-huh. I, I really, I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed, not embarrassed. Like anyone who knows me knows that would be a typical Denise thing to like, you know, spend all of my available cash to figure out some problem in some, you know, metaphorical way that, like, there's a straight line through, whatever. But when it comes to clinic, not so much, right? Uh Because sometimes we overthink things. And I, and, you know, there is a, uh, there is a well-known homeopath who likes to say that classically trained homeopaths can't fix a cough. Mm -hmm. And as much as I hate to admit it, I think sometimes they're right. Mm -hmm. In fact, I don't hate to admit it. I think that that is a fair statement about some homeopaths, not not all by any stretch of the imagination. I, I put my hand up and say that until uh, for my first 20 years of homeopathy, I was, as a practitioner, yeah. I was not interested and not skilled and not capable of fixing acute, simple acute dramas right. like coughs. Yeah. You and I had talked about this because I think yeah 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 when because when you and I first got together you were surprised by how I practiced because I handled a lot of acutes and it's it was because of the training that I had well it was it wasn't actually I I tell a as you would say I tell a porcupine <laughs> because it wasn't I don't think that my training 
we learned about acutes for sure, but you know, you don't really learn how to do it until you're in it. And it, I think that's the point. I think that's it. And I think, you know, from a very realistic perspective, it's really difficult to teach something that is basically theoretical. And like any teacher, you teach your best cases. So you go, oh, yeah, I gave Callie Bick and it disappeared. Mm. But like what happens when Callie Bick doesn't make it disappear? You know, you've got to understand why you would then switch to caucus cacti or whatever the case may be. Right. Yep. Anyway, so I wound up having to do tons of acutes because when I joined the, the group practice, and here I'm going to use another idiom that I probably shouldn't, low man on the totem pole. That's probably got a negative oh, yeah. Native American. See, like, now, my ignorance. I Well, now I know I should ask a question, right? Uh. But it's probably terrible, and I've probably said it a thousand times. Uh, anyway, the point is that point you is I were... I was new. I was the new person. Yeah, you, I mean, everyone knows what that means. I know, but, but like, it's But you should probably say something like, you know, the, the latest person into the law office. You know, that makes the coffee. Right. That's what you're saying, isn't That's it? That's totally what I'm saying. Yeah. Isn't it funny? I did not start out today thinking about my language and self-reflection, but I... Oh, it's really interesting because in clinic yesterday... Yeah. Uh, one of our students, I'm going to say Noelle, shout out, shout out to Noelle, was saying... She was, sus- I wa- she was saying, I want to talk about... Oh, I might have been in class. Can't remember. I want to talk about the way we use language... In homeopathy. Yeah. And, uh, and and then I said, oh, we're probably going to need to, you know, put a pause on that one. But it's really interesting because I am, I'm pretty, um, well, I'm always a sentence ahead, you know, so I'm kind of half editing. Editorinum. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, no, I no. am because I know sometimes when you're in the moment and you just say something, right. you get in trouble, you know, because you can't... T- t- you know, talk for a living and not offend someone sometimes. Well, you know what But I, what I'm saying is that I just found myself in that lecture or whatever it was, might have been the clinic, just going, I'm just then catching myself going, oh, I just did say the word prescription. Right. I did just say the word cure. Oh, you know, and just, I can't, those are the examples that I can think of right, right. now. Anyway, well, let's I think, get caught up on that. No, no, no. But it's funny. It's just funny when things start to come up. It's just like naturally coming out of my mouth today. So I better watch what I'm saying because maybe I'm... Maybe this is a way to pre-edit. But I think about it, you know, in learning another language or in, you know, slang, you know, like I, so much Italian slang was such a part oh of my, my childhood. God. And then going, why do we say, and all the ones I could think of off the top of my head are sort of naughty, so I won't. But anyway, okay. Can I, can I make a suggestion? Okay. If you read the 21 volumes of Patrick O'Brien's oh, right. Captain Jack Aubrey, uh-huh. <laughs> you would learn British nautical language, which yeah. is not offensive, right? Wasn't offensive. They did not perceive it to be offensive. Well, I don't think so. But Out and down, I come with a sharp knife and a clean conscience. <laughs> I love when you were reading those and you, <laughs> you were singing sea shanties and you had, you know, that was your obsession for quite some time. Anyway, let's come back to the, the clinic. Was a shift that put the sea. <laughs> the I, name of the ship was the valley of tea. I, I honestly, I can't get enough of it, but now I'm going to want lobster bisque. All right. Okay. Sorry. So, in the clinic. Yeah. There are so many, this all came from skinning the cat. There are so many ways. Because every case is different. And what's really interesting is how if you sort of subscribe to a methodology or you try to systematize something, you try to make something two-dimensional that is ultimately a multifactorial problem, you're going to not solve the problem eight out of ten times, right? And so it's, 
watching the arc, like I think about the year, right? As we bring students and new students come in in September time, Hmm. and then they go through clinic. And then, you know, in the beginning, watching the first semester students grapple with trying to solve a problem that is a clinical homeopathy problem using the skills that they bring with them. It's a natural thing to do. Of course it is, right? All whatever they have with them and and it's and blended with what how society views medical and health issues, which is through diagnostic and allopathic lenses. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this there's this shift that we have to do all the time to re to rejigger our thinking to be homeopathic at all times. And I will say to the students, ah, I'm going to stop you. We're going to bring this back. I want you to say this like a homeopath, right? And it's, 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 sometimes it's hard to do because it challenges us to find the words that are very explicit about the problem mm. that are coming from our paradigm, which is inherently different. But then, okay, so let's take it to the next level. This is, this is the part that I'm sort of working through in how in how the book is going to lay out because there as i you know having spent a lot of time with the 19th century literature and you know i got to read the um stuff from the educational system. So how were students learning in Herring's college, in Herring and Lippi's college? So I read their papers and their dissertations and their, you know, and their homework and their notebooks. And it's just like what we do now, except that there's no psychologizing whatsoever. This hour and a half long, two hour, now you hear about people three hours, four hours, six hour case taking just didn't exist. It just totally didn't exist. Now, I'm still going to advocate for uh, spending that time with people for a variety of reasons we can talk about. But, but what happens is, is that we've 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 added on all this extra stuff, mm. you know, to we've added on so much to a process that isn't as difficult as we make it, and this is it's sort of it's just created. It's like we've made the problem much harder than it is. Yeah, except for when it isn't. So I would argue, and I want you to push back on this if I'm totally wrong. Yeah, I would argue that eight out of 10 cases, maybe seven out of 10 cases are so much easier than they are made out to be. Like so much over analysis goes into a case. Like when a student, and and shout outs to students who are working so, so hard to like figure this out because it's really difficult, Mm. right? And I think that a very diligent student is going to go to the hardest part. They're going to say, okay, so what I need to do is all this thematic analogizing. Is that a word, analogizing? I don't know. I don't know. Making analogous, whatever. But like, okay, so this is a case about a split, and, and, and in this split, you got this on this side, and you got this on that other side, and it ties together, and it's basically like an English lit dissertation, where all the themes, in like, you know, you read a good novel, and you realize that the arc of the character, everything ties together in this neat bow at the end, is really super satisfying about understanding, you know, human relations. But sometimes there's just a constellation of symptoms mm. that appears in a remedy. So this person has, you know, weird toenails. They have a digestive, you know, very particular digestive complaint where they poop at a certain time and they get a cramp. And they also have a right-sided headache where their eye waters. 
Period. The end. And it doesn't matter their, their relationship with their mother or their sister. There's mm. a unique constellation of symptoms that takes you to the solving the problem. Yeah. Right? I think, for me, because yeah. I'm on board with you with that. I mean, in fact, I would agree with that statement 100%. But there are, however, also clients that also... Um, psychoanalyze oh, themselves, yeah, and and I, I, it's kind of like you know half knowledge. It, it's the the difficulty is not the knowledge; it's the half knowledge, and so uh, often. Wait, is this like conscious incompetence? That no, kind no, of no, thing? no, 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 no. What I'm saying is that every now and again we'll get a client that comes to us and also then starts to tell us the why they think that they've got this. Influence. Yes. Oh. And then, then I mean, Those naturally, are my favorites, but I'm fascinated favorites. by that stuff, and so I get caught up in it, and often. You know, while I'm agreeing, because I, I think we can hold both. So sometimes th- there's a fascination with the why and understanding how a person, the train wreck that is someone's health, yeah, got to this point. Right. I think for me, that's really, really interesting. I love that. But we don't need to know to be able to identify the right. totality of characteristic symptoms. That's it. Now, you can have that one. What? But there's a chapter in your book or something. No. the the. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'll give yeah, you credit. Yeah, no, I just have it. <laughs> okay. But that, because um, I see myself getting caught up in the, in the, I'm going to say psychologizing. Totally. Um, because that's actually where I came from, right? Oh, yeah. So That's where I you met di- Steve, right? I did. Yeah. I met Steve in Gestalt therapy training yeah and i actually left gestalt therapy training i just realized one day i'm way too young for this oh. <laughs> you know i was kind of in my early 20s yeah i went i need to live for a couple of decades i think yeah and um and sort of you know just backtracked on it but then i went forward with my study of homeopathy in my mid-20s and so i i kind of there's a part, I'm just acknowledging that there's a part of me that's kind of fascinated by it. And every now and again, I'll, I'll whisper to the students, you know, you know this, I'll whisper to the students, shh, Denise might be listening, but this is what's going on. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, I say that sometimes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, because then I'd light the Oprah candle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, for those of you who are not um, familiar with this, I have a candle. It's one of those candles like you can get in a... The Catholic shop. Yeah, you can get in the Catholic shop or in, um, in when you live in New York, you get them at the Spanish bodegas. Aye. And you can buy them for like a dollar or something and they'll have like whatever saint that you, you know, and you light it. I mean, being Italian, like the novena is everything, <laughs> right? So I love a good candle lighting. And I happen to find... Mm. An Oprah candle, and I and I bring it down, and I light it whenever we start getting into the root of people's problems in a way that is too divergent from mm. what's going to actually help us find the homeopathic remedy that's going to move their health forward. Yeah, but can then, I tell you though, I I think why I love working in, you know as a clinician is I love to know people's stories. Right, that's exactly it. Did you ever meet Jane Chichetti? Um, she lives in New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, I, I had a couple of fascinating conversations with you her. Just, she's a, a homeopath and she's a dream. She's into... Dreaming. I think she's a Jungian dream analyst. Yeah. 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 And, um, and it, I just, I remember going, oh, that is a combination of skills. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the difference from the, from sophisticated, skilled analysis 
from someone who really knows their stuff, plus homeopathy. And an English lit. And an English, yeah. Yeah. And a client that's saying, well, my mother and my sister and, you know, those things that you just said before. Or the ones who tell you what each healer they've gone to has told them is the issue. Oh, I want to... Okay, I was going to say something bad. That's really tough. Yeah. Um, I really love... I mean, I love knowing people's stories. You know, you think about this, like, at a party, you know, you can always tell the people who sort of fit this profile, they're off to the side with one person getting the deep story. Right. Instead of, you know, the six people... Flitting around. uh, Yeah, and having, you know, belly laughs. Yeah. 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 Got it. But the best part about being a homeopath is like, you know, because at the the root of it, to be honest, it's just because we're all nosy. Well, we're all introverts. No, but we're nosy. I mean, yeah, to nosy be fair, intro- right? It's nosy, nosy introverts. introverts. And like, and then you, so you, you have this job where you get to ask people whatever question you want, and then they give you money. <laughs> <laughs> it's like such a, it's such a great deal. Oh. Um, Jeez, but, if you're listening to this and you're a prospective student. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. But, but here's the thing. But what we're talking about is clinical training and the fascination of clinical training and, and the fascination of clinic. The job of the homeopath is amazing. Right. The job's unbelievably amazing. The, the job of learning homeopathy. Well, doing has, homeopathy. You know, where the rubber hits the road and you start to integrate those foundational principles. Right. You know, the, there's, there's plenty of different clinical models. That, that, you know, just like in, uh, you know, medicine or, or dentistry or whatever, you know, eventually you've got to, you know, find out what's in the mouth and then you've got to work on people with bad teeth. Right. You know, that's clinical training where the rubber hits the road. And there's different ways of doing that. And what Denise and I agreed straight away when we met was start at the beginning. You know, get them in. Get them in. Oh, my God. It's a moth, but you have to get it. It's going to eat all the, all the wool. Did but I it's a sentient you? being. I know. I'll get it. Could you please? Can you just explain what happened then? Oh, sorry. I just, I, I just gave Al a heart attack because I did this very quiet pointing um, at so something quiet. behind him. And it, it's a moth in a sheepskin. And I just, we had one, the first year we moved into this house, yeah, which was built you, in 1840, uh, uh, when fall came around, the first fall after our first winter, oh, yeah. <laughs> every one of our pieces of wool clothing look like Swiss cheese because the moths the moths and we've been good lately can I just say what you just did because there's a because if you did that and I was in Australia that would mean that there's a spider the size of your hand right that's on your shoulder I know that you gave me that look I totally gave you that look yeah all right, so now my The fact that Australians sleep at night is amazing (laughs) to me all the things that can kill you can you Uh, remind me what I was saying I have no idea. No, no, no what no. we were talking about is though how the, all the different clinical models and what we agreed on. So when, so when yeah. when we when um, Al and I first had the opportunity to create a program together, you know, we had we had some serious conversations, and and the first que- the first thing I said to you, if you remember, was why do so many really smart people spend all this time and energy and money studying homeopathy and then they can't do the job? Mm. You know, they're not successful in practice or they get mediocre outcomes. Or what I think is really sad, they then turn to other ways of using potentized substances in ways that don't have any clinical evidence and are just like trying all kinds of stuff and they feel really frustrated. Mm. 
And we had to figure out how we could do that. And the only answer that I could come up with other than, you know, like sort of sound curriculum with learning outcomes and so forth, okay. But I feel like most schools are in the ballpark with that, unless it's unless they're teaching sort of outrageous stuff. But like for the most part, mm. people are teaching foundational principles, right? But the the biggest difference is is clinical training. Yeah. And I think because of the way that the world was before the accessibility of good online, you know, like real time online um, capacity yep. was just that you couldn't access enough clinical training. And because you, I think you need so much of it. I think you need more of it. I think you need like three times more than people tell you mm-hmm. you need. And like, I, tr- there's, a, there's a thing that, that, um, that I've been noticing is that every now and again, I'm thinking of say, you know, cause you can see it as a teacher, even, teaching online when someone is going oh okay they they start to look up to the right right <laughs> and they then they're thinking about something and then they're going oh oh yeah click yeah you know you see those moments happening and clinical training is where a lot of those moments happen and sometimes yeah. i'm noticing you know we get we get big clinics yeah. big, you know big attendance at our clinics but we don't sometimes get the students that need to have those moments because students can pick and choose when they come. Right. You know, it's just, uh, I think it's a challenge we've got because I, th- I think sometimes, you know, oh, if, if this student saw that one, oh, that, one, that, mean, one that one, that one, so, that yeah. one, that one, that one, they would have got over that hurdle. But I, we were talking in a class or no, it was like in one of the webinar things we were doing. And I'm pretty sure it was Irina who, Oh, it was when, I remember what it was. We had the senior students, we did a fireside chat where we had senior students uh, talking about their experiences of their aha moments mm-hmm. um, oh. as a way to build confidence. Because, you yeah. know, there are those times where you have that dip in confidence where you're like, oh my gosh, this is so much bigger than I thought it was going to be. Ah, yeah. Yeah. right. And I'm pretty sure it was Irina who said yeah. she turned up in her second year of full-time training and she went to clinic and she was like, oh, I get it now. It was this moment of like, oh, Right. Like all of the principles come together. And, you know, we had to make we had to make a decision about how we were going to handle that. And we've tried it. I mean, just because, you know, we've been running this clinic now for well, I mean, I've been doing the same clinic, holding it for 12, 12 years Mm. Um, and then, you know, clinics before that. Um, And there, there are so many different ways that you can you know, that you can do clinic. And so like there's, so there's the model where you do all your didactic training and then you do your clinical work. Mm -hmm. And that's great because then you've kind of got all the skills to be able to problem solve. The problem is that the didactic training has the capacity to become what I affectionately call bong talk. It becomes too philosophical, right? Because it's not, you don't have enough of the reality. The flip side is you've got people who are hearing terms and seeing advanced logic in play that don't have all of the foundation for that and it becomes frustrating and and for the most part students will reflect after they get over that hump oh my gosh now i get it that conversation you had about the miasmatic you know uh, um, uh, evidence that drove you to make a particular clinical decision now i get why you're doing that and why i was so fixated on that plant remedy that has no place in that chronic you know, um, decision makes sense. Mm. Right. Mm. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's a right answer, but I feel really good about where we are. 
I think um, from what I've seen, the yeah. way I the, I think you know because we're, we're kind of talking a bit of educational theory as well is that um, there's I've not seen a clinical training model that works for all students, right? Because not all students have the same levels of confidence or resourcing of themselves and resilience as as everyone else. But do you think that by offering a lot of clinic, that ultimately the volume of clinic, yeah, I think I I would say that I think this is true, that because of the volume of clinic, like I'm just reflecting on what we do, Mm. means that the students are going to be exposed to such a wide variety of problem-solving requirements that ultimately you can get most people over the hump. Like repetition, I think repetition is so important. I totally agree. And I think that's what we do. Yeah. And and that's why um, it's, I mean, it's awesome. So, like, if we go back to the original point, which was starting with my my ear, right? And and so, because what what it has me thinking about is how, you know, trying to get the point across to students that there's not always one way. So like this conversation, it might be very worthwhile for me to have a conversation with people about what am I not willing to hear on my feminine side? Fair enough. Like, I don't know, maybe that's my life lesson. But at the end of the day, you know, you could also ask the question, is there overproduction of wax? Or is there a small eustachian tube or, you know, a mouth formation or, I mean, I'm not saying any of these is really real for me, but I just actually had a memory that I had um, an ear that uh, I popped an eardrum years ago before before I was a homeopath, my last real job in mm-hmm. 1992, before I, you know, changed my trajectory, I was flying constantly um, and um, I had a cold and then my eardrum blew. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh. It could be a completely, you know, different perspective. You've had that thought as you're talking to me. It just happened. You're amazing. This. How does that? <laughs> that's multi But anyway, that but that, thank you. I'm still just chewing gum. Uh, that's all right. Yeah. Uh, you're not drinking coffee. This is... This, <laughs> I'm having coffee. You're having mud. Uh, so I have the caffeine advantage. Yeah. But listen, though, the, where we started, though, was around this idea of overcooking a case, overthinking a case. Right. You know, I love, I'm going to quote Jeremy Sher a couple times in a row here because I think, you know, I, I, I have so much respect for everything that, you know, he's reflected back to all of us as a community based on the experiences in Africa, which is the no BS homeopathy, you know, which is, and, and I think I, I, got this experience working in a homeless clinic taking, you know, sometimes 10, 15 cases in a day. You know, there's no hour and a half per person, you know, and these are complex cases. You just get to, you know, get to the facts. So the no BS homeopathy, I think, is really important. Um, I also think that understanding, you know, well, everybody who's, you know, heard me talk knows there's so much in Hahnemann's theory of chronic disease that has been misunderstood and misappropriated. You've got to understand how that affects a case. But then there are also all the clinical things that you need to understand. Like sometimes you've got to shrink a totality down to just what needs to be cured. You know, like there's this thing that that I do in clinic a lot where I'll say to the students, the remedy that whatever client needs must do this. Good. Right? And, and I think that's and and that asks us to move beyond just our interpretation of someone's life and into 
what homeopathic remedies do. I mean, this kind of comes down to the herring-lippy debate in a way. And I think maybe this is, you know, maybe this is where we can really understand what Lippy was going for, which is, you know, Lippy talks about how similars is is hierarchically superior to pathological diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And that's really it's really easy to to sort of misappropriate. But if you think about it, similars is hierarchically superior to pathological diagnosis. What does that mean? It means that if you do a proving, right? So if you take aphorism 20 really seriously that says you can't over-intellectualize what a remedy does, you must experience it in order to get the aphorism 153, which is the most characteristic symptoms that you would not know other than through what I call the redemptive suffering, right? What a homeopath is willing to do by undertaking approving to put forth those symptoms. You're never going to really know everything that a remedy does, right? And so if you're going to look hierarchically, you, you, you have to move beyond that pathological understanding of what remedies do, right? And then you say, okay, then the way that I, the language I would use to just probably oversimplifying, but to, to say what Lippy is, is trying to get us to understand is around that constellation of symptoms. Mm-hmm. That a homeopathic remedy, when well-proved, will show us its unique constellation of symptoms that come out, right? And then you get to that aphorism 211, which is the mind symptom, the, 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 the unique mental aberration, is what then slices it, right? You don't start there, you end there. Mm. Can I say one more little thing that I just thought of? Because I also taught the business plan this week. Only one more thing. Only one more thing. And that is, I, I was saying to the students, the one tip is when you're writing your business plan, write your executive summary last, okay. even though it comes first. Yeah. I wonder if we can use that same analogy to when Hahnemann says in chronic diseases, you're going to put the mind symptoms at the top. You're going to start with the mind, and then you're going to go into all the physical symptoms. That doesn't mean you start with the mind. No. Right? You, you end there. You look at the constellation, the unique constellation of what the remedy does. And then you cut it with the mind symptom that represents the you thing. Differ- that what do you pers- mean you cut? You differentiate. You differentiate. Sorry, you differentiate it. So, like, you do your case analysis. You have, you know, let's say if you've got a really good uh, repertorization, mm-hmm. no more than six rubrics, preferably three to five is the sweet spot Mm -hmm. and several of them right Mm -hmm. but let's say you've got this great repertorization six rubrics and it yields 20 or less 20 remedies yeah and that's assuming you've got good numbers in your rubrics good numbers of remedies in each rubric if you've got those 20 remedies and you don't have any speculative mind symptoms in there you can then say I'm going to look at each of these 20 remedies and I'm going to vet them based on A, are they acute or chronic? B, do they address the affinities for which this remedy is known? And C, most importantly, does it do the mind thing? Hmm. Which one of those remedies has whatever insecurity or has, you know, the feeling of being whatevered? I love it. Right? Because what that does is it it removes all the speculation starting in as if it's all about, Mm. you know, a person's sort of feelings. Mm. But it uses it hierarchically. It's hierarchically superior because it's your decision-making tool. 
What do you think about that? I think there's a whole chapter. Oh, totally. That's more than one chapter. That's a section. <laughs> How big is this book going to be? It's actually, I mean, it's going to be big. It's a compendium. It's going to be pretty substantial because I think... When does a book become a compendium? When you declare it so. <laughs> <laughs> it is declared I so. I hereby declare. Because there's no, I mean, case analysis is, is like, that's the core of what we do. There's not so much about it. Well, there are lots of theoretical interpretations of how we go about it, but not one. So this is a way for me to process the the experience of running clinics for so long. Yeah. This is it. I love it. What a I, great conversation today. I'm super excited about it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Mm. There were a couple of other things we wanted to say, but if we hit time. What else do we want to say? It was about it was about case analysis because we oh so this is pretty funny as we were starting as we were making the morning beverages and feeding all the creatures, um, I said we end every podcast saying we'll talk more about that next time and I said so we should probably listen to the end of the last podcast to see what we said we were going to talk about, and we were having that discussion about how in case analysis, we were talking about um, the sensation method and where it began mm. and sort of how amazing it was that Rajan, as, a, as, a, as an incredible thinker, sort of put forth this next idea that then got taken to the wind and became all these other things. Mm. And then we we're talking about account, clinical accountability, mm. right? And how much we don't know about our own practice if nobody tells us. Yeah. yeah. And That's re- that is really interesting. I mean, as a, that, that last point alone, I think it's totally fascinating. Not to go back to the point that we were making last week necessarily but um you get feedback on the results of your work because clients tell you yeah right but if they don't come back you don't know no i've had more clients than you can poke a stick at that i've met in the fish shop or the butcher or the cafe much later say Thanks so much. Oh, yeah. And I'm going, yeah. you never came back. And so for me, you know, the unclosed case. Yeah. They're like, hey, I'm back. There's a failure. Right. And they're going, are you kidding? Why would I pay you money to come and tell you that, you know, I'm feeling good? Right. So I, I've had so many of those experiences that, I, that I, I can't consider that someone that doesn't come and see me is a failure. But you also can't assume... Good. That it's a success. I mean, so this is, yeah. we're the same in that. I always assume if somebody doesn't come back, it's because I suck. Right. <laughs> and so, therefore, I mean, I know that it's, it's hilarious. I think, um, you know, George Dimitriadis used to, he lived in Parramatta, worked in Parramatta, which is kind of like adjacent. It's, it's still within Sydney, but it was, you know, quite a, quite a distance. And for some reason, there, there was a year where I used to get all of his clients. It's like, I used to see a homeopath. Oh, who was it? Oh, some guy in Parramatta. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I said, why aren't you seeing him? And he says, oh, because of the, you know, there was like, I was getting George's rejects, if you like. And I, and I know that he was getting mine. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's, there's, this, there's this exchange of... It totally of, happens, I, right? I know, but yeah. it takes a conversation between... Two professionals to, to for you to get feedback right. on those that five percent, yeah, you know that that go. I think that's that's the thing that that's so um, kind of striking. In a way, if it was a restaurant, you'd be relying on your reviews, right? 
Uh, I don't know. That, that, uh, Homeo I mean, Yelp. That would be terrible. Uh, oh, my Lord. I, because it, there's so much more that goes to healing. Like, the expectations that people have now are completely unrealistic. Like, you know, now that the pill, now that people believe you can get a homeopathic remedy and it's going to change your life in one second, and mm. you don't have to change your diet or, you know, your relationships or your exercise or your addictions. <laughs> it's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Levitating. Um, can we go? So... As we close this up, yeah. so one of the things that um, it gets me thinking about, though, is, you know, you were alluding to how we we take a long case, not because we need all that information, but because we love it. But I think the reality is we are also building relationships. Oh, we've got to engage. No, totally. To. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, like, we hold this space that other modalities don't. Like, oh. what other modality are you going to go to to talk about your, you know, your dreams and your toe fungus? Right. There just isn't the space for that. Your goldfish and your grandmother. Yeah, exactly. So so there is that. And we are also, and this is something that I just love. And, you know, I have my list of fantasy PhDs, right? And so one of them, one of the topics would be, I mean, think about this. Homeopaths are the repositories of of story in ways that you just don't get it in other ways. Like we think about our case notes and all of that information. Right? I mean, imagine what it would be like to go through and sort of mine that for sort of the stories and the ways that people deliver it. Anyway, but that that relationship is so important and the ways that we hold space and information. And he, a story is um, uh, a, a kid. Actually, it's funny because I'm going to talk to him tonight. Um, he was diagnosed with Crohn's at three. Mm. And he's now, gosh, is he four? 14, 15, something like this. Um, and I've been working with him probably maybe four or five years. And he's, thank goodness, he's off meds, um, all this. Anyway, And but when you're a kid, right, it's like really hard to understand progress because you're in the moment of what I want to do. And so one of the things that we did a couple of visits ago um, was I had just been in preparation for seeing him. I was reading through all the case notes and I found this thing where we set a goal. Um, and the goal, I said to him, what, what's going to feel, what in your life will make you feel like I have, you know, I've done this, I'm good. And he said, I want to eat a donut from whatever this donut place is near him. Yeah. And so at the last visit, or a couple visits ago, he told me he had a donut. And at first his mom was like, I don't want him eating donuts. Like he should not be having gluten, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, how was it? It was delicious. And what happened after? Yeah, it was fine. Mm. Nice. And it was like this virtual high five across the screen that this goal, right? So when you're, you know, 14 or, or 57, like a donut could be the, the best thing you could really think of, right? But it was, it was amazing to see that progress. Well, the way that we keep track of information, we hold space in a way. And because of our note taking and because of the active listening that we do, we you know, we hold this and we know the stories. And when we work within families, we also know the trials and tribulations and the challenges. And we know the dates of, of people's losses. You know, I have clients that I realize after a time, they come to see me on anniversary dates. You know, um, when I worked in the homeless shelter, there was this guy who, um, you know, I was there for five years and he would come on the anniversary of his mother's death and it was in the beginning it was because he knew he was going to go on a bender and and you know he had wound up in prison for mm. what he would do on those dates and then he would come back to tell me that he had gone through that anniversary date 
healthy mm. and self-reflective, right? So, so we hold this space in ways that it's like, I don't know, it's like the best job ever. It is. Yeah. So the client relationship is sometimes a different dimension than the prescribing information. Oh, yeah. But then other times, you know, it, it becomes everything. So can we, for our next... Um, podcast. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the fungibility of totality in long-term case management and how we, you know, one of the skills and attributes of a really solid homeopath is their ability to understand how to manage a case over time and how the totality can expand and shrink and which sometimes that shrinking, sometimes we in a long-term client relationship, we hear that one thing that they say that leads us to the next remedy or to a small remedy or sort of an obscure remedy or a remedy that we're prescribing that's like based on this one sort of funny, odd sensation that they have. Will there be snacks? Absolutely. And the case will be there. I, I really like this idea. We have to remember it. Right. You've got to write it down right now. I'm going to write it down. And as we said the last time, um, please come with ideas. Um, oh, yeah. Rena had a great idea to talk more about anthroposophy and Steiner and sort of the the kind of historical convergence mm. around some of this. Um, and I'm, I, I need to get my head in that space again because I've been in a different space. Um, but it, it reminds me, yesterday, I um, just as we're closing, I had the privilege of speaking to the Faculty of Homeopathy. That's the British Mm. Medical Homeopathic Association, like honor of a lifetime. Um, And there were some folks there. It was interesting because I was talking about alchemy. And of course, there were some folks there that have like just this incredible knowledge base, both around anthroposophical medicine, about Paracelsus and Spagyrics. And we got to have, you know, we got to really nerd out on some of this stuff. And so... um, I was just thinking about how some of these topics are so inspiring to have, you know, how they are adjacent to homeopathy. And and some people have been, you know, writing to us and asking for how we can, you know, continue these conversations and ask the questions. For now, I would suggest that um, Home Foundation, you know, we've got a Facebook group. So, um, you know, seek us out there. Do we, uh, on the website, mm-hmm. we'll make sure that on the website. Home Foundation? Yeah. On the, is there a link to the Facebook group? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, you know, you can go to home, H-O-H-M-foundation.org, and then click on the Facebook link, and we can get you into our Facebook group, because there have been some really lovely discussions about, you know, topics on the podcast that we're taking deeper and getting your voices involved in That's it. a good idea. I love that. I love it, too. Okay. Aw. That's it. All right. Hope your ear gets better. <laughs> what? <laughs> See you guys later. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. AHE is changing the face of homeopathy education by raising the bar through rigorous academics and unparalleled clinical training delivered live through the soulful use of cutting-edge technology. AHE prepares its students to become fully rounded homeopathic practitioners from anywhere in the world. Apply today and ask about the early enrollment discount at AHE.online.